Section 16 of Hildebrand and His Times by William Richard Ward Stevens. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 11. Deposition of Gregory the Seventh by the Council of Worms. Henry the Fourth excommunicated at Rome by the Pope. Diet of Tribur and suspension of the King's authority. Henry escapes from Speyer and goes to Italy. January 1076 to January 1077. The council met at Worms on the appointed day, January 24, 1076. Twenty-four German bishops were present, one Burgundian and one Italian. Only two archbishops came, Siegfried of Mainz and Udo of Trier. Anno of Köln had died the month before, and his successor, a creature of Henry's, was not yet consecrated. The archbishops of Bremen and Salzburg held aloof. There was a large gathering of abbots, but they took no important part in the proceedings. Siegfried presided. The most influential layman present was, of course, Duke Godfrey. Cardinal Hugh brought forward incredible accusations against Gregory of licentiousness, cruelty, witchcraft, and of using bribery and violence to obtain the papacy. Few could have believed such calumnies, but at this moment the sympathy of the council was with the king. He had just been victorious in war, the pope was unpopular with the German clergy, and had countenanced unproven charges against Henry's character. A resolution renouncing obedience to Gregory was signed by all the bishops except Adalbert of Würzburg and Hermann of Metz, and their scruples or fears were presently overcome by the vehemence of William, the aged bishop of Utrecht. The bishops then drew up a letter addressed to Brother Hildebrand, as they dared to call him, setting forth the reasons why they renounced their obedience, his despotic government, which had brought schism and confusion into the church, the irregularity of his election without the consent of the heir to the empire, his intimacy with the countesses Beatrice and Matilda, and their interference in ecclesiastical affairs, which was a scandal to the church. A letter in the king's own name repeated all these charges, but in more insulting terms. Henry, king not by usurpation, but by God's holy ordinance, to Hildebrand, not pope, but the false monk. How darest thou, who hast won thy power through craft, flattery, bribery, and force, stretch forth thine hand against the Lord's anointed? Despising the precept of the true Pope St. Peter, fear God, honor the king. Condemned by the voice of all our bishops, quit the apostolic chair, and let another take it who will preach the sound doctrine of St. Peter, and not do violence under the cloak of religion. I, Henry, by the grace of God, King, with all my bishops, say unto thee, Get thee down, get thee down. It was resolved that the decree of the council should be laid before the bishops of Lombardy, and then publicly announced in Rome, and that the Romans should be invited to receive a new pope at the hands of the king. Hutzmann and Buchart, the bishops of Speyer and Basel, with Count Eberhard, started immediately for Italy, and the resolution of the council was approved at a synod held in Piacenza. Henry also wrote a private letter to the pope, informing him that his arrogant treatment of the bishops in Germany had become intolerable, and that his iniquities, revealed at the Council of Worms, proved 
that he had forfeited his right to the apostolic chair by his authority therefore as patrician the king bade him descend from it in another letter to the roman people he charged them to insist upon gregory's abdication and to accept another pope whom he would appoint after council with them and the bishops it was not easy to find a messenger bold enough to deliver these terrific documents at rome but at last roland a priest of parma was induced by the offer of a large reward to undertake the errand the lent synod was held on february twenty first in the lateran church the empress agnes was present one hundred and ten bishops attended all from italy and gaul a large number of abbots and monks and a promiscuous throng of roman clergy and laity the hymn veni creator had been sung and the assembly was absorbed in the examination of a portent an egg on which the form of a black snake seemed to be traceable writhing beneath a shield pressed down upon its head when roland entered and addressing gregory cried aloud the king and our bishops bid thee come down from the chair of peter which thou hast gained by robbery then turning to the cardinals he said ye are bidden to receive another pope from the king who will come hither at pentecost for this man is no pope but a ravening wolf the assembly was convulsed with horror and rage the cardinal bishop of porto shouted seize him and cencius the prefect would have rushed upon the envoy and hewn him in pieces had not gregory shielded him with his own person the pope received the documents from roland's hand and bade him sit at his feet and then with unruffled calmness completed the business of the first day's session the next day a contrite letter arrived from some of the german bishops but it was too late to avert their doom gregory read the resolution of the council of worms and the letter of the king before the indignant synod excommunication was pronounced on siegfried of mainz and all who had signed the acts of the council those who had been intimidated into signing were to be deprived unless they made due satisfaction to the pope before st peter's day the bishops of lombardy were excommunicated but the heaviest missile had yet to be hurled at the head of the greatest offender after a long and solemn prayer to st peter as whose representative he claimed the power of binding and loosing in heaven and earth the pope uttered the fearful sentence of deposition and excommunication upon the king for the honour and security of the church in the name of the almighty triune god i do prohibit henry king son of henry the emperor from ruling the kingdom of the teutons and of italy and i release all christians from the oath of allegiance to him which they have taken or shall take and inasmuch as he has despised obedience by associating with the excommunicate by many deeds of iniquity and by spurning the warnings which i have given him for his good i bind him in the bands of anathema that all nations of the earth may know that thou art peter and that upon thy rock the son of the living god hath built his church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it such a tremendous sentence had never before been uttered by any pope no doubt the same lips had threatened the king of france with deposition but the threat had not been executed and the king of france was a far smaller personage than the heir of the roman empire 
the two greatest potentates in western christendom the spiritual and temporal heads of the empire were now locked in a deadly struggle yet the deposition of the king by the pope was not so great a shock to the minds of men as the deposition of the pope by the king besides the mysterious and awful sanctity of his office it had never been forgotten that the imperial crown had been originally bestowed by the pope on charles the great and it was a fixed belief that the heir of the empire was not emperor until the pope had placed the imperial crown on his head if the pope bestowed could he not withhold if he elevated could he not also degrade but for the king to depose the pope was to treat him like a refractory feudal baron it meant nothing less than the complete subjection of the ecclesiastical to the secular power it meant that the emperor or heir of the empire could set up and put down popes at his pleasure that the centre of power was shifted from italy to germany and that rome was no longer the mistress of the world the confidence of gregory in the justice and final triumph of his cause did not waver for an instant he invited the faithful to pray that the hearts of his enemies might be turned and their devices frustrated but he did not disdain the use of more carnal weapons he strengthened his military force in rome he reopened negotiations with robert guiscard and roger the bishops in lombardy indeed met at pavia and anathematized him but even in lombardy he had friends the paterines were not extinct and all his partisans found a leader of indomitable masculine spirit and large resources in the great countess matilda who by the recent death of her husband and her mother was now absolute mistress of her vast inheritance her dominions formed a stout bulwark against any attack upon rome from the north nevertheless gregory must have awaited with anxiety to hear what kind of echo his thunder would awaken on the other side of the alps had henry commanded the respect or love of his subjects no doubt the blow which the pope had dealt would have excited deep indignation but the reverence which had once been felt for the name of king had been weakened during his minority and since he came of age neither his private nor public conduct had done much to strengthen it the nobles had grown hardened in the habit of breaking their oaths of allegiance and a religious sanction of disloyalty would completely pacify their consciences the disciples of cluny had long been preaching the supremacy of rome and their teaching now found a congenial soil in saxony where the people welcomed a fresh pretext for revolt henry was at utrecht when he received tidings of the sentence pronounced upon him at rome he burst into a furious rage and with his counsellors poured forth a torrent of abuse upon the pope he was a hypocrite heretic murderer perjurer adulterer his anathema was null and void and must be flung back upon his own head pibo the bishop of toul formerly chancellor of the king was commanded to pronounce it but pibo shrank from the awful task and fled from utrecht by night william bishop of utrecht had none of his scruples from the pulpit of his own cathedral he anathematized gregory the perjured monk who had dared to lift up his hand against the lord's anointed the pious and the timid shuddered at these fearful imprecations invoked upon the head of christendom and in the thunderstorm which broke over the city on the same day and struck the cathedral they read a token of the divine wrath the king however undismayed 
summoned a great national council to meet at Worms on Whitsunday, May 15th. Three aged bishops were specially cited in order to give evidence of the Pope's perjury, William of Utrecht, Altven of Brixen, and Ebbo of Naunburg. The king's letter to Altven dwells on the grave peril threatened to church and state by the attempt of Gregory to unite in one hand the two swords, the spiritual and temporal, which God had separated. This is the first example of the image of the two swords, which in later times was so frequently employed. Henry's plans, however, turned out so ill that men might fairly think that he was pursued by the divine wrath. Altvin of Brixen was seized on his journey by a Schwabian count and imprisoned. William of Utrecht suddenly died on April 27th. The Council of Worms was very scantily attended. Few of the bishops were there, and fewer still of the nobles. Urgent summonses were issued for another council to be held on June 29th at Mainz, but in the interval most of the leading nobles withdrew from court. Some of the Saxon prisoners were released or escaped, and the rebellion was soon in full swing again. The council at Mainz turned out as signal a failure as the council at Worms, and at last Henry resolved to negotiate. He sent conciliatory messages to the nobles and desired some of the Saxon prisoners to be brought to Mainz to treat about terms of ransom. Whilst they were there, a fire broke out, the consequence of a fray between the servants of the archbishop and the bishop of Bamberg, and in the confusion, all the prisoners escaped. Another unsuccessful attempt to recover Saxony by attacking it through Bohemia completed the failure of Henry's plans. Profoundly dejected, he retreated early in September through the north of Bavaria to Worms. His position, indeed, in Germany was becoming most precarious. Saxony was lost, prelates and nobles were falling away from him, and it was only too plain that even in his own kingdom the power of the Pope was greater than he had reckoned it to be. While the tempest was thus gathering round Henry on every side, Gregory had been corresponding with his friends in Germany and elsewhere. On July 25th, he addressed a letter to all the faithful dwelling in the Roman Empire, another on August 25th to Hermann, Bishop of Metz, a third on September 3rd to the faithful in Christ in the German kingdom. The import of all the letters is the same. The sentence of excommunication and deposition had not been pronounced until all milder remedies had been tried in vain, Precedents were quoted to justify such extreme methods, the deposition of Childeric by Pope Zacharias, the repulsion of the Emperor Theodosius by Ambrose from the church at Milan. All intercourse with Henry and his counsellors must be avoided, for those who held communion with him become excommunicate. But if he repents, the Pope will deal gently with him for the sake of his incomparable parents. On the other hand, no one must presume to absolve him without the consent of the Pope, and if he remains obstinately impenitent, a new king must be elected. In September the nobles and prelates held a conference at Ulm, where it was resolved that a diet should be summoned to meet at Tribur on October 16, 1076. The Pope was informed and approved of the resolution and appointed Altmann, Bishop of Passau, and Zikot, Patriarch of Aquileia, to attend it as his legates. On the appointed day the Diet assembled. At Tribur 
the last emperor of the direct Carolingian line, Charles the Fat, had been deposed in 887, and now all Germany seemed prepared to do a like deed. Schwabians, Bavarians, Saxons laid aside their discords to combine against the king. Profound respect was shown to the papal legates. The excommunicated bishops, including Siegfried of Mainz, craved and received absolution from them. That the pope had a right to excommunicate the king, and that he had exercised it justly, was soon decided by the council in the affirmative. But the right of the pope to depose, and of the council to make a new election, was not so easily determined. The nobles did not wish to acknowledge an absolute right in the pope to dispose of the throne, but on the other hand, they did wish to use the papal excommunication as a pretext for electing a new king. Seven days were consumed in debate. Henry, with a few friends, tarried at Oppenheim on the opposite side of the Rhine. He continually sent messages to the council, promising amendment of his conduct and offering to surrender the government to the whole body of nobles if they would leave him the title and insignia of king. The nobles had little faith in his promises, and at first turned a deaf ear to all his proposals. But at last, through the intercession of Hugh, abbot of Cluny, Henry's godfather, they were induced to treat with him. Their terms were deeply humiliating, but the unhappy king was powerless to dispute them. His absolute submission to the pope was demanded. Release from excommunication was to be obtained from him alone in person, and if not obtained within twelve months from the date, February 22nd, on which it had been pronounced, Henry's right to the throne would be irrevocably forfeited. A diet was to be held at Augsburg on February 2nd, 1077, under the presidency of the Pope, to determine the fate of the king and settle the affairs of the church and kingdom. Meanwhile, Henry was to abide at Speyer, deprived of all kingly authority and state, and bereft of all companions but his wife, Dietrich the Bishop of Verdun, and a small staff of servants chosen by the nobles. If he adhered to these conditions, the nobles promised to conduct him to Rome for his coronation, and to aid him in driving the Normans out of Italy. But if he broke one of them, they would renounce all allegiance, and instantly proceed, without waiting even for the Pope's sanction, to the election of another king. Henry retired to Speyer, and spent about two months there in dreary seclusion, shut out from the services of the church, as well as from the affairs of state. But he was meditating escape from his fetters. He had charged Udo, Archbishop of Trier, to convey his submission to Rome, and to inform the Pope that he would visit him at Rome to ask absolution. Nothing was further from the wishes of the Pope or of the nobles than such a step. The Pope was unwilling to be committed to a decision either way before the Diet met at Augsburg, where he could preside as arbiter. The nobles feared that if Henry made terms with him before the Diet, they might be unable to elect a new king. But what both sides dreaded actually came to pass. Udo returned with a message from Gregory, declining to receive Henry in Rome, because he was on the point of setting out on his journey so as to reach Augsburg before the day fixed for the Diet. On December 28th he was in Florence, thence he was conducted by the Countess Matilda to Mantua, which he reached on January 8th, 1077. Here he was waiting for a safe conduct over the Alps, which was to be sent from Germany, when he received the startling news that 
that henry was already in italy and had reached vercelli the situation was alarming for lombardy was still so hostile to the pope that henry might soon have got an army together for which the troops of matilda would hardly have been a match it was therefore deemed prudent to convey the pope to a place of security a hasty retreat was made southwards to the apennines where gregory and his friends were lodged in matilda's strongest castle the impregnable mountain fortress of canossa End of section 16